Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of the Korean War is brought to you by the Agora Podcast Network. When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and you should absolutely check out the other members of this lovely, wonderful group. Check out agorapodcastnetwork.com or just search Agora Podcast Network in Google or wherever else you get your podcasts from. When Diplomacy Fails and Zach Twomley, don't know why I keep referring to us in the third person, but we're very happy to be part of the Agora Podcast Network. And some of these guys who are potters in this network are my good friends. So do check them out. Check out all the podcasts that are happy, proud members of this network. But for now, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 24. 
Last time we brought our narrative up to the point where an American-sponsored resolution was about to be proposed to the UN Security Council. The date was the 27th of June 1950, in the afternoon in the UN headquarters in New York, and 10 out of the 11 nations of the Security Council were assembled to await the message that the United States' delegate was about to present. If this was passed, then the Korean policy envisioned by the Truman administration in the spring would be able to proceed, but if not, or if the Soviets actually turned up and made use of their veto, then the plan would be ruined. In this episode, we'll open from the point of that decision in the United Nations, but we'll also use this episode to establish the base for the subsequent resolutions adopted by the UN Security Council. If that sounds confusing, don't worry, it's not. This episode just will give you a good grounding in what's to come and everything to do with the UN. So if you're looking forward to finding out more about that institution and how it operated at this stage of its early life, then look no further. You should enjoy this, guys. By the end of this episode, you will have a good grasp of not just what the UN did through resolutions and through decisions made in its General Assembly debates, but you'll also have a good grasp of how its member states differed in several respects from the power that was now the leading member, the United States. It's a story of high hopes, high diplomacy and high stakes, so I hope you're ready. I will now take you to the United Nations Security Council in New York in the afternoon of the 27th of June, 1950. The song of the week this week is brought to you by OnlineGreatBooks.com. OnlineGreatBooks.com is a new sponsor of When Diplomacy Fails. They're here to make reading books an enjoyable, rewarding, and even sociable experience. What do I mean by that? Well, here's the thing. With OnlineGreatBooks.com, you get access to several privileges and perks, which make delving into and absorbing these books an absolute breeze. And these perks include a reading goals system, which is designed to help you progress through the great books, with three one-hour reading sessions each week. Most interestingly of all, though, each month you and others who have enrolled will meet in a two-hour video conference to discuss your text with a small community of readers in a Socratic seminar led by a trained Socratic host. Of course, for this to happen, you need to get your hands on these books, and every month, Online Great Books ships a carefully selected edition of one of these books directly to your home. Which books, you may be wondering? Well, everything from authors by Nietzsche, Homer, Cicero, Spinoza, and more. You'll start with Homer and you'll progress through works by Plato, Aristotle, Shakespeare, etc., all the way up to the moderns. To summarize then, with OnlineGreatBooks.com, you, yes you, have the chance to avail not just of a revolving door of incredible works, but also to nerd out about them with others, which, yeah, that's pretty fun, and to ensure that you always have a supportive community behind you, checking up on your progress and making sure you're not falling behind. There is just so much to unwrap and enjoy in this great service, guys, and it's a great idea, really, because it'll help everyone read more and it'll help everyone appreciate these quality works that they have in front of them. If any of this sounds interesting to you, then please go and check it out. Click on the link in the description of our episode here, or visit OnlineGreatBooks.com and use the code DIP, that's just the word DIP, by the way, to get 25% off your first three months. To access great works, join a vibrant community, save yourself some money, and support the show. Make sure you head on over to OnlineGreatBooks.com and use the code DIP. That again is DIP. Thanks, and the song of the week this week is Bring Back My Blushing Rose by John Steele. It was released in 19... 19- 
21. Enjoy, guys, and we'll be back with episode 24 of the Korean War. Huh, how about that? That rhymes. Britain, France, the Republic of China, Cuba, Norway, Ecuador, Egypt, India, Yugoslavia, and the United States of America all stood on the precipice of history. Gathered together in a large room with its distinctive semicircle table were four of the five permanent members of the Security Council, since the Soviets were still absent, and six temporary members. The significance of the event was quite something. Here were several nations, some of which didn't even exist a decade before, gathering together under the auspices of an institution, which also didn't exist a decade before, to talk about what policy to adopt towards a country which, yes, didn't exist a decade before. A whole lot had evidently changed in the preceding ten years, and many of those assembled were mindful of the anniversary, and for the French in particular, the date resembled a ten-year anniversary of an event still painful to the national memory and psyche of France. The Pall of Appeasement of the League of Nations of the self-congratulatory do-nothing bureaucrats that had enabled such a terrible tragedy to take place without mounting significant, sufficient opposition still hung in the air. During the course of its troubled history, the League of Nations conducted not one single action of collective security. Its members were exposed as spineless when the Abyssinian Emperor pleaded for aid and for the League to do its job. Its members had been shown to be disinterested when reports of Nazi Germany's rearmament program had been learned of. Its members ultimately had been powerless to halt the very thing they had been established to prevent. The experiment in collective security and international cooperation had miserably failed, and yet the United Nations was one of the sure fruits of this Second World War. From the ashes it emerged, with the renewed vigour provided by bitter memories and, critically, solid, enthusiastic American support. 
On the 18th of April 1946, in Geneva, Switzerland, a symbolic meeting took place. This was the final meeting of the League of Nations. Positioned as it had been in the neutral Swiss capital, the League had actually carried on most of its symbolic and associated organisations during the war. During the Tehran Conference in 1943, it was decided that the League would be replaced by a new, similar institution, which, this time, the United States and Soviets would play active roles in. It was Robert Cecil, a British politician and diplomat, who had been one of the most vocal supporters of the League and its principles when it had first been founded over a quarter of a century before. And it was Cecil who delivered the final powerful speech in the League's hall. Cecil said, Let us boldly state that aggression, wherever it occurs, and however it may be defended, is an international crime, that it is the duty of every peace-loving state to resent it and employ whatever force is necessary to crush it, that the machinery of the Charter, no less than the machinery of the Covenant, is sufficient for this purpose if properly used, and that every well-disposed citizen of every state should be ready to undergo any sacrifice in order to maintain peace. I venture to impress upon my hearers that the great work of peace is resting not only on the narrow interests of our own nations, but even more on those great principles of right and wrong which nations, like individuals, depend. The League is dead. Long live the United Nations. As was the case with everything else in this era then, context was everything and the ten assembled powers that took part in the United Nations Security Council debate on the 27th of June 1950 knew full well that even while much had changed in a decade, the power of the aggressor, the danger of war, and the capacity of man to assault his fellow man on the world stage had not changed. The Korean conflict was just another such failure in the world system, another example of the strong preying upon the weak, of the ambitious lusting for glory, and now of the beleaguered in need of aid. The weight of this moment must have weighed heavily upon them, and the resolution adopted two days before, condemning the breaking of the peace and the aggression, demonstrated that the UN Security Council would at least act, even if its actions had yet to bear any teeth or really properly condemn any individual actor. The resolution of the 25th of June hadn't merely encouraged the West and the South Koreans, it had also produced a knock-on effect in the UN's dealings towards the communists. With a clear example of communist violence being directed against a peaceable, though obviously flawed, regime in South Korea, there was a serious dearth of goodwill in reserve for the likes of the People's Republic of China, which was still attempting to angle for the Republic of China's seat on the five-seat Permanent Security Council. Communism remained, in the minds of many, a monolithic movement, a tidal wave consuming all free democracies in a coordinated strategy. To many assembled in the United Nations, and indeed to many statesmen in Washington, London and Paris, it was inconceivable that the communist powers were not acting and pooling their resources together as one great and terrible nation. With regards to this idea, it would take some time before the true extent of Sino-Soviet difference became clear, and before the People's Republic and the USSR were seen as separate issues. This attitude towards communism was used by some historians to explain why the United States believed that the Chinese would not intervene in the war later on in the year. The rationale went 
that since the Soviets were evidently showing signs of pulling back and moderating their tone, the Chinese would never act independently of Moscow. The rude awakening to the reality demonstrated that to figures like Mao Zedong, communism could be as nationalistic as he wanted it to be. All that truly mattered was the power behind the actions that were made. The resolution on the 27th of June was American-sponsored and was designed to elicit a commitment from those present, even while a contribution of soldiers was not promised from each member state. The wording of this new resolution, to repel the attack and to restore international peace and security, did not echo the policy Washington would later take, or the one which Truman knew he would have to take in time. For the moment, though, the impermeability of the fog of war obscured what the North Korean People's Army had planned. Would they surge down the peninsula, or would they hold on to Seoul and walk away with the money, as it were? The Truman administration couldn't be sure, but they could be sure that an armed intervention, or a declaration to the effect that they intended on doing so, would alienate portions of the United Nations, and likely prevent the kind of united front that the Americans needed. Of course, since such an event is over 65 years old and we know what took place after, the US resolution was destined to pass by a vote of 7 to 1. Yugoslavia voted against the resolution, while Egypt and India abstained. The resolution thus passed. The Truman administration had set their foundations in place, since the resolution had called for members of the United Nations to render every assistance to the Republic of Korea as may be necessary to repel the armed attack and to restore international peace and security in the area. Passing such a resolution suited Truman under the circumstances, but trouble was on the horizon. Having used George Kennan to persuade America's allies in the hours before the vote that all the United States wanted was to restore peace, with no mention of any large-scale operations in Korea that would push beyond the 38th parallel, Truman knew that, fairly soon, the United States would have to go back on this commitment. It would be then that the American ambassador to the United Nations would argue that the only true way to restore international peace and security in the area, as the resolution had described, was to invade North Korea proper and remove the threat which Kim Il-sung posed to the peace. Almost as soon as the circumstances of the war and of the North Korean push past the River Han in particular was discovered, the next phase of the American policy towards Korea was developed. In future episodes, we shall see that as early as mid-July, Truman and Dean Acheson were already working for a way to get around the wording of the resolution that they had adopted, with the aim of creating an internationally supplied military force. As the story of Korea tells us, the administration were successful in this regard, but it remains to ask that important question about the American proposals to the United Nations, which are largely glossed over in the traditional telling of the Korean story. If Washington had its plan, and if Truman appreciated what America needed for the desired military circumstances to take place, then why did the United States act alongside the United Nations Security Council at all? Why didn't she simply act, as she had done by moving the 7th Fleet to anchor at Taiwan, unilaterally in Asia? The historical consensus states that the United Nations granted the US additional legitimacy, as well as the moral high ground, and this is certainly true, judging by the way in which the war is viewed today. To fully answer this question, though, we must remember, first and foremost, the history of the divided Korean peninsula at this point, and, critically, the presence of several UN personnel in the Republic of Korea. 
We'll recall that the United Nations Commission on Korea had been working since December 1948 to facilitate the withdrawal of soldiers from the Soviet and American spheres and to build a cooperation process that would make unification under democratic auspices easier. Of course, neither the Soviets nor Kim Il-sung wanted to see unification in the terms that the UN was selling and they refused to permit the entry of the UN personnel into the northern portion of the peninsula. Thus rebuffed, the UN Commission on Korea focused instead on making the South a better place to be, and in reinforcing the security of Rhee's regime. In 1949, the UN Commission on Korea was given additional responsibilities to guard against the threats to the South posed by the North along the 38th parallel. This border had been far more volatile than was perhaps expected, and a permanent contingent of UN personnel was actually stationed along the 38th even at this stage. Indeed, shortly before the actual invasion by the North, the UN quietly expanded its observation teams along this border, enabling the UN to receive reports of the situation on the ground and order to rely on the United States for such intel. To jump ahead with the narrative somewhat, in October 1950, the United Nations would establish the UN Commission for the Unification and Rehabilitation of Korea, or UNKIRK as it's sometimes called. The responsibilities of this organisation were to engage in relief and reconstruction programmes in the country as per the guidelines of the UN General Assembly and the recommendations of the Economic and Social Council of the UN. Yes, you're right, the UN has lots of different arms that all want to get involved in Korea. Two months after this, the United Nations General Assembly established another organ to get the job done, because all the other ones just were not enough, and this was called the UN Korean Reconstruction Agency, or UNCRA, to help exclusively with the problem of rebuilding the Korean economy. UNCRA was to be the economic arm of UNKIRK, and was supposed to liaise with the so-called Agent General, in other words, the military commander of UN forces, to facilitate the establishment of a unified, independent, and democratic government in Korea. Since everyone was going Korea crazy in the UN by this point, displayed if nothing else by the amount of freaking organisations they were setting up, the General Assembly set up a further five organisations to watch over and control the UNKIRK. Don't worry, we're not going to actually list them all here. But in addition to the economic, infrastructural and political aid, the UN also established a pattern which it maintains to this day. The provision of aid to the actual civilians caught in the crossfire. The UN Security Council established an emergency programme for civilian relief to be operated through the UN Command in July 1950, and this ended in September 1953, after the Korean War ended. Throughout this period, the United States would contribute over $400 million to this relief program, and $100 million to the UNCRA. Other member states contributed about $50 million each to the two programs, which were aimed at rebuilding the Korean country as much as rehabilitating the Korean people. These were clearly huge sums of money and the effort is often forgotten amidst the more interesting aspects of the war, but it is at least refreshing to denote that the people of Korea were not glossed over, since the biggest losers from the Korean War were the Korean people themselves, with as many as 3 million people estimated to have been casualties on that small peninsula. The efforts of the UN and the United States make for especially good news.
Of course, the cynic would say that this aid was all well and good, but did the aid actually help the Koreans and produce the desired results? Not so, according to the historian Chi Young Pak in his book Korea and the United Nations, wherein the author notes, Both programs, adopted at the initiative of the United States, were not successful due to two main problems, the lack of agreement on objectives, priorities and methods, and the dominance of military considerations on reconstruction policies. The creation of all these organs and programs is indicative of the extent of the UN's involvement in the Korean War. The UN did its best to cope with an unprecedented situation, and its General Assembly would play an important role in mediating a peace between the two different sides. The UN Security Council would also furnish several resolutions over the course of the initial few months of the war, as the military and strategic situation on the peninsula changed, and the UN Security Council members were forced to deal with fresh challenges, such as the suspicion of their home governments to the idea of intervention, and the return of the Soviets to the Security Council in early August 1950. For the sake of our narrative here, it will be helpful in this episode to examine the major resolutions put forward by the UN Security Council during the course of the war. This will mean that we jump ahead in our story a bit, but it will serve us as a handy base from which to return to in later episodes. By revealing these resolutions now, the idea is that for you guys, the bigger picture will become a bit clearer. So, if you're ready, let's begin. And I'll promise not to throw too many organisations at you guys. So we saw in the last episode how hesitant the Truman administration was to actually act decisively in Korea so long as the fog of war existed and the North Korean People's Army advance was far from certain. Yet by the 30th of June, it was clear that events were proceeding apace. This is something that we'll look at in the next episode, so don't worry, you haven't missed anything yet. But as I said, we're fast forwarding here a little bit to make some points. So, the assault across the Han River by the North had been largely successful by the 30th of June, and it was on the 30th of June, three days after the UN resolution calling for the UN to render every assistance to the defence of South Korea, that General MacArthur's legions actually marched. The US 8th Army, conducting its occupation and peacekeeping mission in post-war Japan, was finally shipped across the sea to the beleaguered peninsula to the eager relief of the general. MacArthur was named Supreme Allied Commander, and the 8th Army of American soldiers was now given a badge of legitimacy by adopting a UN banner and claiming that it operated in that institution's name. In his book on the Korean War, historian Robert Barnes made the following astute observation of MacArthur's timely arrival on the 30th of June 1950, saying... Bolstered by his sense of both destiny and racial superiority, MacArthur was confident that the North Koreans would be easily defeated. But over the following weeks, the UN forces in Korea were overwhelmed and pushed back. The 8th Army's ineffectiveness was the result of post-1945 cuts in the military budget, which had produced an understrength, poorly equipped, trained and officered force. After nearly five years of occupation duties in Japan, these American soldiers were also ill-prepared for combat. MacArthur's eagerness, his initial shocking failures, shocking to him at least, and the helter-skelter retreat down the peninsula, are issues we'll address in the next episode, so don't worry, we're not going to ignore this period altogether, because it's really, really interesting. But for now, it suffices to say that this US failure formed a critical part of the UN experience. On the 7th of July, the UN Military Command was established. 
and this was the military arm through which all subsequent UN actions would be conducted. As the month of July progressed, the demonstrated failure of so small a UN contribution made it plain that greater contributions would have to be made if South Korea was to be saved. On the 17th of July then, an important milestone was established, because the UN forces were placed firmly under the command of the Supreme Allied Commander, Douglas MacArthur. This centralising of command under the Americans was met with some irritation, but Washington reasoned that since it was footing most of the bills in Korea and providing most of the troops, such control over command was only fair. Most objections raised were lobbed not necessarily at the US command per se, but at the US commander, MacArthur. As it transpired, the suspicions that the old warhorse would gallop ahead of his orders and prove something of a liability to the war's course proved to be well-founded. Indeed, the consequences of placing UN forces under a single command structure, but with few actual guidelines or plans for the future, were felt by early October. In the midst of what seemed like a military collapse in the North Korean People's Army, there was a real sense of positivity in the air, or at least in MacArthur's mind there was. It was now that the meagre goals of simply pushing up to the 38th parallel and leaving it at that began to seem inadequate. MacArthur wanted more, since only with a push into North Korea and by eliminating Kim Il-sung's regime could the peninsula be free of the commies. As the American ambassador to the UN put it, Shall only a portion of this country be assured this freedom? I think not. Indeed, as the historian Paul M. Edwards wrote, objections to advancing beyond the 38th parallel were quickly lost in the rapid pace of advancement and the perceived doom that the northern regime now faced. Edwards noted, When asked about crossing the 38th parallel, Truman had told a press conference earlier that the question was still open for discussion and on the 17th of July he had asked the National Security Council to prepare a recommendation for the possibility of crossing the border and destroying the North Korean army. All during this discussion, the British and the Indians opposed any movement into North Korea, but they acknowledged that the military momentum in Korea was quickly outstripping their political activity to prevent it. You'll recall from earlier on that we noted how Truman planned to find a workaround to the initial pledge to not advance past the 38th parallel in mid-July, and here is when that plan began to take shape. While Paul Edwards, the historian, unlike Richard Thornton, doesn't attempt to speculate on the true reasons why Truman might have wanted such an advance to go ahead, he does note the passage of the Offensive Across the 38th Parallel Resolution on the 7th of October 1950 in the UN Security Council. He does note the passage of something very important. This was the Offensive Across the 38th Parallel Resolution on the 7th of October 1950, I'll give you a guess for what it was actually all about. A significant fact about this resolution was that it was passed not in the Security Council, since the Soviets were back in the Security Council by August and were up to their stalling ways, but it was passed in the General Assembly. This distinction is important because resolutions in the General Assembly were not legally binding as those in the Security Council were supposed to be. Although they thus granted Washington the moral legitimacy, the Soviets could claim that they held no legal basis, to which the US would retort that according to their interpretation of the 27th of June resolution, calling for the defence of the area, the multinational force was well within its rights. 
UN resolutions which followed this one reflected the immediate pace of developments on the ground. So for example, on the 10th of November, the resolution proposed was created in response to the evidence that the People's Republic of China was getting involved. This spooked several members of the UN Security Council, who hadn't been especially thrilled about advancing beyond the 38th to begin with, and one in particular, the British, proposed that a demilitarised zone be established just before the Yalu River to prevent the Chinese intervention from becoming a full-blown war. The proposal stipulated that the North Koreans lay down their arms and that a UN commission be established to restore order and peace to the region, consulting also with the Chinese. Both the British, French and Italians were in favour of this November 10th proposal, which would pull the UN force back from what appeared to be the precipice of war with China. Revealingly, the Secretary of State Dean Acheson asked for the resolution to be delayed for a few weeks, while the situation on the ground could be better assessed. Acheson, if it wasn't obvious yet, was playing the game of Procrastination 101 by November 1950, because he was trying to juggle the objections of America's allies with the unofficial policy of Washington as set down in NSC 68. A UN commission would prevent the escalation of the conflict and would thereby offset the need for great budgetary increases. Acheson and the Truman administration did not want this since their goal was to escalate the conflict and have the stalemate war that was needed to bring the budgetary increases for America around. That's pretty much been our thesis the whole way along. And by the autumn of 1950, we can see a kind of tension between America and its allies where Korean War Aims was concerned. November was a particularly trying month for the Allies, as nerves were at their most frayed with the appearance of the Chinese volunteers. Acheson even felt the need to state, for the record, the following reassuring message. We have no special interests that we want to achieve. We don't want to dominate anyone. We don't want territory. We don't want any of the things for which empires have in the past fought. We want only a world in which we can be free and in which everyone else can be free. Ah, it's nice to hear Acheson's voice, isn't it? So yes, that's what he actually sounds like. But in any case, predictably enough, General MacArthur was peeved at the very notion of treating with the Chinese, and he balked at the back-channel approach taken by London when the British attempted to deal with Mao through an alternative route, but received no response. Douglas MacArthur was well-placed, as always, to make a judgement about someone else's moral fibre, and he evoked the incendiary image of appeasement once more, saying that giving China a strip of North Korea was akin to giving the Nazis that sedaten land, adding that, Indeed, to yield to so immoral a proposition would bankrupt our leadership and influence in Asia, and render untenable our position both politically and militarily. This, of course, was MacArthur's way of saying that he would not stop advancing up to the Yalu River, no matter what the consequences. The offensive would not be stopped. But by the 13th of November, the United States was proposing its own resolution, and this time, it was the other Allied nations' turn to veto it. President Truman, Acheson, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and several other figures in Washington latched onto the idea of bombing targets on the Manchurian side of the Yalu River, in other words, of taking the fight to the Chinese, and bursting through the veil of the volunteer force, because volunteer force wasn't really like telling the truth. 
Mao used the idea of a volunteer force as a kind of veneer to prevent him from having to actually declare war. These volunteers were just as organised and just as professional as the rest of China's soldiers were, so it was kind of ridiculous calling them a volunteer force. But hey, on the grand international stage, sometimes plausible deniability means everything. On the surface, Washington claimed it wasn't looking for approval for this resolution per se, and that it was merely looking for a reaction from its allies. A reaction was what it got, as the idea was unilaterally condemned. If this had been part of the strategy to escalate the war as per NSC 68, then for the moment at least, such a strategy had failed. A diplomatic counter-attack was then launched in the United Nations, as on the 14th of December 1950, a resolution calling for the establishment of a ceasefire planning group was proposed. On the 1st of February 1951, a resolution calling for a condemnation of the People's Republic of China as the aggressor in the conflict was tabled. The Truman administration declared its desire to have such a resolution on record and explained that it was essential for the sake of the UN stability and for the sake of clarification in the home governments. Yet by spring 1951, with the Chinese being pushed back, the immediate anxiety evoked by the war had greatly lessened and the United Nations was splitting into additional opinion groups. The British, above all, were beginning to sympathise and identify more and more with the Indians than the Americans, and they were calling for ways to neutralise the conflict rather than to escalate it. Initially then, the attempt to brand China as the aggressor seemed to fail, but the Americans returned with a compromise that stated General MacArthur, who by this stage had been perceived by many member states in the United Nations as a loose cannon, would be given no more authority to advance until significant peace overtures were forwarded to the Chinese. This assurance seemed to do the trick, and through this diplomatic manoeuvre by the United Nations, the United States leveraged its condemnation of the People's Republic of China through the UN. According to the United Nations, Mao Zedong was now the aggressor in the Korean War. The Chinese chairman was outraged. Mao was not the only one to be outraged, of course. This American resolution and the actions which followed it stuck in the craw of many US allies, including the British, Indians, French and Canadians. By May 1951 it was apparent that a stalemate of sorts was underway in the peninsula, and yet it seemed to outside observers that Washington wished to fan the flames by asking for increased trade embargoes and restrictions against Mao's regime, in retaliation, it was said, for the Chinese aggression. This resolution did go ahead on the 7th of May 1951, but by this point it was becoming likely that the United States would have to work a great deal harder for such a diplomatic victory again. The goodwill that was present in the institution in the previous year had mostly been exhausted, and the member states wanted a negotiated end to the war. They were, by that stage, sick of the Korean War. They didn't want any more incendiary statements which would only exacerbate the tensions. The American leadership's practice of sanctioning, and as it appeared to many members, deliberate poking of the Chinese bear, could only result in disaster. The early Chinese warnings that any effort to paint it as the aggressor would prevent any negotiated peace had been ignored, but issues were reaching an impasse in the political halls as much as along the battlefield. By summer 1951 then, as the war degenerated and the kind of tit-for-tat stalemate it would become for the next two years, there was much food for thought among the Allied nations. A striking aspect of the UN policies in particular was the constant need of the institution to check what the Americans were proposing first, 
and to issue recommendations which would separate the Korean issue from the Chinese one. The Canadians in particular voiced their increasingly irritant objections to Washington's tendency to lump the Korean and Chinese issues together as one, and to the references to US actions rather than UN ones. As the historian David Stairs noted in his article on the UN and Korea, representations to the United States to clarify the issue may have been unsuccessful, but Allied pressure had another interesting consequence, as Stairs wrote. Allied pressure on the United States to separate clearly the Chinese and Korean issues persisted throughout the hostilities, and from the start it compelled the Americans to distinguish their Taiwan policy from their posture on Korea. What Taiwan policy, you may reasonably ask, worrying that I'm going to bombard you with yet more information, since all the United States had done by late June 1950 was move their 7th fleet to anchor on the coast of Taiwan. What was so bad about that? Well, from the beginning, you see, Washington had pursued a policy on Taiwan that was evidently independent of the United Nations, even if they didn't always seek to clarify this fact and the United Nations didn't want to be associated with the Taiwan issue, since it was recognised as such a sore subject for the People's Republic of China. Again though, being associated with Washington's Taiwan policy wouldn't have been that big a deal if it had been confined merely to keeping a fleet on Taiwan's shores. Predictably enough then, considering the US end goal by this point, merely having their fleet sit outside Taiwan wasn't all that the United States chose to do. For several reasons, and this is something we will look at in more detail so don't worry, remember this is just a general overview of what's going to happen in the future, featuring the United Nations. But yes, for several reasons, General MacArthur was sent to Taiwan in late July 1950 to confer with the Chinese Republicans, which no doubt sent a shiver of rage down Mao Zedong's spine in the process. The Americans were plainly determined to stick their nose in the business of the People's Republic, but the United Nations didn't want Mao to have any illusions about where they stood on the matter, especially since it wouldn't be until October 1950 at the earliest that the Chinese will begin making their presence felt in Korea. It made no sense, in the minds of many of America's allies, to provoke the Chinese by arriving in Taiwan and conversing with Mao's moral enemy. The reasons why Washington chose to do this will be examined in the next episode. In this episode, we've touched on the United Nations, the resolutions it proposed, the structures it set in place, including the UN command above all, and the tensions created by the problems of the war as the aims and enthusiasms of the member states changed. Something which should be quite evident even from this overview is the distinction between what the Americans wanted and what their UN allies wanted, especially after the initial emergency passed and the Chinese were slowly pushed back. American determination to force and aggravate the issue contributes, in my mind, to the thesis of this series, that the Truman administration wanted to escalate the conflict so that its defence budget would have an excuse to stretch alongside the expanding war operations. It wasn't until later on in 1951 that, having acquired the funds they desired, American leaders rolled back the forceful policy and became more focused on peace. We are by no means finished with the United Nations, but hopefully this very chunky and involved episode here has given you guys a better base to understand the course of the conflict and the interests of the United Nations therein. Next time, we'll engage in another of these base-setting exercises, 
when we set forth the course of the war through 1950 and spend some time examining the role that the likes of Douglas MacArthur, the United Nations and others had to play in its operations. Was MacArthur, as some would later claim, an aggravating force in the quest to contain the Korean War or was MacArthur, like so many others, merely an actor in a play which the Truman administration was attempting to control? We'll find out next time, but for now, my name is Zach and this has been episode 24 of the Korean War. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.